Welcome to the Accessible Learning Experience, where we help you turn learning barriers into learning opportunities. For our final episode of 2023, we are excited to welcome Louis Law Nelson to the podcast. Louis, who herself is a master podcaster and the creator of the popular UDL in 50 Minutes podcast, is an international UDL educator, consultant, speaker, and author. She has worked with schools, districts, universities, and ministries of education around the world to support UDL implementation and research. And you'll hear about some of those experiences on this episode. Louie will also share her UDL journey, her insights on the importance of accessibility for UDL practitioners, and her tips for getting started with accessible podcasting as a way to grow the UDL community by sharing the work of the many great educators she has met along the way. Here then is our conversation with Louie Lor Nelson. Hello, everyone. Today we're here with Louis Laura Nelson, a well-recognized expert in the field, uh, lots of expertise in universal design for learning, a well-known author of Design and Deliver, uh, best-selling book, and just a great um, accessibility advocate. Uh, so I want to welcome Louis to the podcast, and we'll go ahead and start it with our first question, which we ask of each of our guests. Uh, so Louis, welcome to the Accessible Learning Experience. For this episode, we'll do things a little bit differently, given your focus on universal design for learning or UDL. So what is your UDL journey and how did you get here? So my UDL journey really began at Bartholomew Consolidated School Corporation in Columbus, Indiana. They were early adopters of UDL. And in 2008, they decided they wanted to hire a point person for their UDL work across the district. Nobody else that we know of, meaning we like the UDL collaborative around the world, no, nobody else knows of anybody that had done this, had created such a position at that time. So when George Van Horn and Bill Jensen brought me on uh, and Karen Garrity was part of that too, it really was a build as we do it job. Uh, I had read Teaching Every Student in the Digital Age and thought it was a really cool concept, but you know, hadn't really done a lot of application. I was a former special education teacher. Uh, George and I ran in the same advocacy circles here in the state, and UDL just made sense to me. So it was my work at that district that really propelled me forward. Thanks for sharing your origin story, if you will, Louis. Uh, <laughs> so what is it that motivates your work as uh, an advocate for universal design for learning? So what motivates me? Um this is going to sound a little romantic, but it's true. All I have to do is picture any learner in the world at any age and in any context around the world. And I want that learner to have every educational advantage as the next learner. It's just really what it is. I see the UDL framework as a structure to provide that kind of educational advantage and the second part of that is driven by my own classroom experiences. I saw then and still see learners cut out of opportunities. And it's because of policies, procedures, practices around them that throw up barriers. And there's nothing wrong with the learner. It's the system that's wrong. And that's why we need a framework, not programs, not strategies, not intermittent professional development. We need a framework from which the system and all with it at work. And I think UDL is that framework. I think so too as well. So I'm excited to have you on the podcast. 
to share your passion for universal design for learning. And I know there's another passion that we have in common, which is accessibility. And we know that accessibility is an important component of UDL. And so this is a great opportunity to make some connections here for people. Uh, so I want to hear from you. Uh, could you explain the relationship between these two concepts to maybe someone who's newer to the world of UDL? Why should they pay attention to accessibility as a UDL practitioner? Yeah, you know, I see accessibility as three parts. So I see the physical, the social, emotional, and the academic and all three of those are served by the framework. Some people come into this work through that physical accessibility. They, they think about the curb cuts and they think about the ramps and, and whatnot. Some people come to this through the academic and they think about in kind of a beginner way of accommodations, modifications, right? Uh, and maybe supports that are provided to students who don't have IEPs, but I think a lot of people still kind of cordon that off. And then there's the social-emotional accessibility, and quite honestly, post-COVID, that's just been a huge awakening for so many people. So we know that all three of these areas need to be provided to every learner, there needs to be the physical accessibility to all the materials. And so when we put all the materials away in a wardrobe in the classroom or a doored cabinet that has a lock on it, and we don't give our students the access to the different colored markers or pencils or whatever those tools are, and they have to always ask permission for them, they have to, it has to be part of a special lesson, then you've effectively blocked off physical accessibility to some resources that could really awaken learners' thinking and, and, and learners' learning. And when we think about the academic accessibility and we think about our learners who, and again, so many, and COVID has brought this to our minds, so many students are being noted as struggling with reading. Well, they don't necessarily have a disability. There's there's a delay there. They've had a learning event, an event in their life that has caused their learning to be delayed. And so all of a sudden, there are some people who are now awakening to the fact that, oh, some of these supports that I used to reserve in my head for only students with disabilities wow, these are effective for all kids. Yes, 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 yes. And I talked about the social-emotional part too. Um, the connection that I see is when I think about the UDL guidelines and I look at the top row, I've always called that the welcome mat. That's just my nickname for it. And if you have those three guidelines, recruiting interest, perception, physical action, you understand those and are implementing those in your classroom, in your learning environment, you have created a welcome map for every single learner. I think it's a fabulous place to start. And I think that it is a way to provide that welcome. Now, of course, CAST did the lovely thing for all of us and labeled that row as access so it helps us kind of go, oh, that's what it's all about. Uh, but not everybody recognizes those little tabs off to the left in the current guidelines. But anyway, that's the nickname that I give to them is the is the welcome mat. 
And of course, we go deeper into access as we go down the next two rows. They're also included in the concept of access. And all of the guidelines have points in them that talk about and reference and provide access. I always go back to, there's a real short clip of Skip Stahl from The Days Gone By at Cast. And it was before Cast had moved, I think it was before Cast had moved engagement to the far left, or it might have been right after. But in this little clip, he reiterates that people used to think access sat in the principle of representation and that with our knowledge, which has continued to bloom of how we know the brain works, that access really truly is embedded across all of the guidelines and all three principles. So you also asked me if you know, if somebody were to get started with this, if somebody's new to these concepts, new to the world of UDL, where would they get started? And so I just go back to that welcome mat. Um, I don't put the guidelines in front of people who are new to UDL. I don't do that. I think it's a little intimidating. So instead, um, just helping them examine their own environment and using what we know are in recruiting interest and perception and physical action and just helping them examine their environment and look to see what they're already doing that has provided that welcome mat for their learners. And then to start thinking about, well, what 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 do I want to work on next that's not going on in my environment? Where do I feel safe taking my first steps with this? Because we all know that we have to have that lower those threats and distractions so that our adult learners can be as effective as our um, younger learners, I'll say. (laughs) That's a great connection. I love the idea of the welcome mat. And the way that I put it to is uh, you've been invited to a dance. And when you show up, right, uh, we want to make sure that you can come into the building. But we also want you to be able to participate in that dance in whatever way makes sense. Uh, whatever way you dance, right? So that you have an experience that's engaging, that it's accessible, and that allows you to participate in the way that makes the most sense for you. So there's multiple ways we can think about this. Uh, And so speaking of the intersection of UDL and accessibility, um, there's so many ways now that we can communicate information. And one of those has brought us together here today, which is podcasting, right? Being able to share information in a variety of modalities, uh, so that's one of the reasons why I wanted you to be a guest uh, on our podcast, because you've gone through this journey of learning about podcasting and really implementing it as part of your practice. So can you tell us a little bit about that uh, journey? And then what advice would you give to someone who wants to get into the world of podcasting? Sure. I knew I wanted to do a podcast, but I I definitely was intimidated by the process to the point that I really was thinking about a podcast for probably at least a year before I got started. But once I started digging into the different platforms and the different kinds of microphones and the different kinds of production software, uh, gave myself that time and space to create the nifty little tables that I like to create and write down my opinions and this, that, and the other, 
then I did feel like I was on my way. It was, okay, this is this is the way you do things, Louie. So just let yourself do it the way you do it and be okay with that. So I I knew what my goal was. I knew I wanted to provide a platform where educators would share their experience with UDL. And beyond that, I was really passionate that these are educators who are, they're doing the everyday work. They don't necessarily have all the websites or the YouTube channels or what have you going on. They are doing brilliant, brilliant work, uh, but it's not necessarily being shared with anybody else. And those are the voices I really, really wanted to project. I knew I wanted it to be short and the title of UDL in 15 minutes just felt right and good. And actually, that was what drove the point that my podcast is only 15 minutes, sometimes 16, sometimes 17, but usually 15. (laughs) And then, you know, after that, I just had to figure out what my intro statement was, my outro statement, the music, and that all just, it, it fell together. But what was funny is that I was out doing work in Arizona and met a teacher. And it, that was that was like the tipping point for me because I was like, I need her voice. Her voice needs to be out there. So that that's the other, the, the little kick in the pants that I needed to say, okay, you're going to, you're going to step out and really do this. So that's where that came from. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that, Louie. And, you know, for those who are listening, uh, there is value in authenticity. And so don't feel like you have to have the most highly produced podcast. Uh, sometimes, like you said, it's just the voices that are featured on the podcast, right? The people that we haven't heard from and that have valuable ideas uh, that they, you know, need to be shared. Um, because by doing that, we build a wider community of practitioners and people that are having impact. So thank you for uh, that motivation of really wanting to share, uh, you know, additional voices as part of this community. And of course, uh, we want to make sure that all of those voices are heard or uh, interpreted in different ways. So I know that um, I remember talking to you when you were starting this journey and we talked about accessibility. So what advice would you provide um for others who want to make sure that when they create a podcast, uh, it's accessible. Okay, so the first thing I'm going to say is that there are a bunch of people out there who have talked to me about my podcast, and they they really do think it's like above and beyond the things that I I do with the podcast. And I say, no, I don't think so. It's I'm making it fully accessible. So I knew from the beginning that I was going to have a transcript, and I knew from the beginning I would comb that transcript and make it as close to 100% accurate as possible. Not just say, okay, I'm going to run it through AI and be done with it. I knew I wanted everyone to be my audience and I knew everyone needed that kind of access. So that's also when I decided to create YouTube version with photos contributed by the guests. And then I knew that I was going to include the subtitles. And then Why should someone who isn't going to listen be forced to read a transcript? Why can't they have their interest recruited too? And so that's why I wanted to do the YouTube with audio descriptions. Everybody had their way of accessing that information. So the audio descriptions, 
So I didn't want anybody to be locked out of the photos. So then I threw that on the plate with the audio descriptions. And that's when I checked with you about creating the script for those descriptions. Uh, I'm never sure I'm nailing that right. Uh, but I just keep going with it. Like I'll listen to other videos produced professionally, like Disney or whatever, <laughs> and listen to their audio descriptions to be like, okay, Louie, let's do a little check on yourself. But I, I, I do my best. I haven't had anybody complain, so I think I'm, think I'm okay. But anybody's willing, you know, if you want to listen and give me some feedback, I'll listen to it. Um, after I'd done about fifty or so podcasts, I realized that I wanted people to be able to find them and find the podcast that was meaningful for them. And so I created a table that lists the podcast by grade level and role. That was so my very first interview isn't lost to history. Like my first five interviews, right? Because most podcasts, so I've done over what, 110, I've done 116 or something like that. And so, and you know, who's, are people really going to go back and listen to all of them? I, I don't, I don't know, but I don't want them to miss somebody like that Arizona teacher, Kim Babu, who was my very first guest because they're like, well, I'm not going to go back to number one. So, you know, she had taught for 38 years. She'd been an administrator. She had returned to the classroom. She was in love with UDL. She had never heard about UDL before. She was in one of my workshops and this woman just exploded. And she did a lot that aligned with UDL, but really what she learned blew her mind and she just took it and ran with it. So that's what I was saying. Like she was my impetus because to watch someone who was that seasoned and that committed to education, but obviously a deep learner and someone who was incredibly incredibly experienced. She'd been teacher of the year for her state. And then, but for her to say, oh my gosh, this UDL thing, I, I've never thought this like this way. I love my students. I will do anything for them. And now this gives me another way to provide them even more access. So anyway, I'm just, I'm like selling her a podcast episode, but I really was so excited. So it really, I mean, she set the tone for my podcast. You know, I don't do series or clusters. I, every once in a while, I guess I should say there's kind of a series because if I get a, like for BCSC, I think I interviewed, I don't know, maybe five or seven people. So I kind of made that into a series and I did one out of Washington. I did one out of Kansas. But typically these are these are single episodes. There's no reason for somebody to return to that, again, that first pop podcast, which really was bumming me out. So I was like, okay, I got to create this table. And actually now I'm like, now I need a second table. I got to rethink this. I, I need to make that table idea more dynamic and do some uh, better ways for people to be able to search and find easily. What I'm up against is that not a lot of people do this in the podcast world. So people aren't used to that. They're just used to listening on their phone or, you know, using their whatever their whatever their tool is for use listening to podcasts rather than going to a website so i just have to think more about how i'm gonna turn that world upside down because <laughs> i need to well and i love um like what you said like you're not going above and beyond you're just building these things in that should have been there right in the world of podcasting and i love the flexibility that you're offering through the youtube version as well uh, so that people have different ways of consuming the information you're sharing. So thank you so much for modeling that accessibility. Um, and I think the table is a great idea. Of course, we got to make the table accessible. But uh, 
it's a great idea of like providing the episodes in a way that people can find them based on their interests, right? Yeah. So that's um, also a great feature. So the podcast is just one of the wonderful resources you've contributed to the field. And I know you have a website as well, the UDL Approach, which I love, love the title, the UDLapproach.com. So if people were to go to your website, what would be two or three resources that you would want to highlight that they could use to kind of deepen their understanding of UDL and really take the next steps in implementing it in their settings? Yeah, the two main resources that are there that I'm definitely proud of are the Tapestry and then the UDL Gears. The Tapestry came out of my head about, I think it's three years ago, maybe now. I've always, when I say always, literally the first year that I was at BCSC and working with all the educators there, helping them think about UDL, I was already frustrated with this concept that some have that it all sits in the guidelines. Although people have conversations about variability and accessibility and goals and methods, materials, assessments, you know, these these things, like, like they'll pop out. But they're afterthoughts uh, for a lot of people. They just, they sit within the the, the checkpoints, the guidelines, the principles. And also because they get locked in on the guidelines, I feel like that's where the attitude of I'm doing UDL comes from because they have the action of using these checkpoints and guidelines and, and principles. I desperately want to shift that all the time. And so the tapestry came because I just started thinking about all of the different concepts and constructs and practices and procedures, processes that are all part of universal design for learning. They're, they're there, but not everybody can think about them or, or thinks about them in a way that helps them put them into action. And so I created this thing called the tapestry. And across the top is definitely about the UDL guidelines, pretty much breaks that information down. So somebody who is new to UDL could come. Um, it's a hover graphic for those who want to use it that way. You just hover your mouse over these different squares that have words on them. And these squares are in a larger square that surround a image of a tapestry. Because I wanted to have this concept of everything weaves together. But anyway, across the top is UDL guideline specific Across the bottom are processes and practices. So like that lesson goal and backward design and design thinking, flexible materials, let's see, including and scaffolding are the other ones. And then across the other, the left and the right, constructs and concepts. So things like Bloom's taxonomy, things like variability, things like equity, things like barriers and zone of proximal development. But anyway, uh, people can either hover or they're of course, is an EPUB or a PDF of that same information. It is there uh, so that they can access that that information. And just last week, I was taking some educators in uh, three different locations through the tapestry. And it is, it's, it is a joy for me to have people walk away from those training workshops and have epiphanies about UDL. And realize, oh, oh, 
oh, wow, there's more I can do with this. Of course, there are people that'll say, oh, my gosh, it's so much bigger than I thought. And that I'm OK with that comment, but I'm always I'm always in love when I hear there's so much more I can do. I'm like, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But they say this in a in like an energized way, not like, oh, my gosh, there's so much I can do. Uh, the other one that I'm very proud of came out much more recently, and that's the UDL Gears. And I won't go into the whole thing on it, but in the sense that I knew, again, that you have these four things that interplay. So what propels the use of the UDL guidelines? And so I was thinking, well, just kind of like the practices that we use in our learning environments. Well, what propels the practices? Well, the skills. You have to have certain types of skills that then make your practice work. And well, you've got to have the right mindsets or you have to have certain mindsets. And the image of gears came to my head very, very quickly because when you have those gears like cogs in, inside a watch, one moves and that makes all the others move. And uh, they, they're interdependent. But if you happen to have a gear and one of those little teeth, one of those little cogs falls off, it doesn't make the machine stop. It just doesn't work as efficiently. It's not as effective. And that's the other part of the message that I wanted to communicate. So the long and the short of it is um, I do a lot of work with folks who are passionate about UDL and are not in the United States. And they can be in wealthy countries. They can be in low middle income countries. But we have a framework that is being adopted in contexts that are extraordinarily different than any U.S. context something else I've been talking about for a long time. It's U.S. driven. It's it's the, the research right now is heavily U.S. based. But I thought, OK, these people are passionate about it. So what is this looking like? What, what are people talking about? So I went through UDL literature that was global. And fortunately, there are a lot of people who are publishing now. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful. So I was able to read all of that kind of stuff, white papers, research papers, dissertations, you know, anything that I could find, listen to some podcasts. As long as I could get the translation, I was good. That's where I got the ideas of what went into the practices, the skills, and the mindsets, because I didn't want to just be Louis Lord Nelson's thinking plopped down on a page. That didn't seem really appropriate. I'm one person, happened to be a white lady from Indianapolis, Indiana. That's not too, you know. <laughs> I've seen a lot of the world, but let's, you know, let's get this straight. So I wanted to hear as many voices as I could. And then on top of that, uh, I asked several friends from around the globe to review the idea and to review um, the words. So I wanted them to say, yes, gosh, this holds together or no, it doesn't. But then also what I desperately wanted them to do was look at the language I was using because it needs to be language that can be translated and not lose the original intention or at least maintain as much the original intention as, as, as possible. So that's like a hard thing with the UDL guidelines, right? That's why there's so many revisions of the UDL guidelines. So I think my colleagues in Japan have revised them like twice, three times. Because, you know, as you do deeper learning, it's like, oh, wait, wait, we need to capture this differently within our language, within our culture, so that we're actually communicating this uh, the way it's intended to be communicated. So I have um, friends from the Netherlands and from Japan, from Korea, 
um, those who did a translation for me for um, in Spanish and um, and explained to me that it would be useful across several different countries. So that was good. And in Turkish, I have others coming from uh, Cambodia and Uganda and Algeria, Malawi. And so these are just all friends in the UDL world that have said, yes, 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 we want to help communicate this. So those those two I'm very, very proud of, and they are explored quite a bit, and I have fun helping guide people through them. And I guess the third thing is just, it's my podcast. It's it's a labor of love. That is a, <laughs> that is just Louie and her extra time. <laughs> it's what she's doing. Well, thank you so much. And you de- definitely are a big picture thinker when it comes to UDL. And uh, you've taken on a really big task of trying to braid all these things together. So thank you for taking that that on and really sharing the message of UDL around the world. Um, and that's really important that you're taking all this feedback from different places because that's only enriches the world, right? or the work, I should say, when we get input from the different communities. So I have a follow-up question, which is not on our list, but uh, it came to me right now as something happens, because I know you've done some work in Uganda, and I know that, um, you know, I'm a big fan of technology. Uh, I'm a big proponent of using technology because of the flexibilities that it affords us when it comes to providing access to information. But I know you've done work in settings where there's very little technology. And so um, can you share a little bit about those experiences and, you know, how UDL works in that kind of context? Uh, because, again, when we think about it globally, right, it's not always going to be in a technology-rich environment where it's implemented. Um, but we can still accomplish quite a bit. So I, I'm interested in hearing from you about your experience in those settings. Sure. So one thing to point out is that uh, smartphones are really becoming ubiquitous, uh, but the barrier is uh, minutes, cell time. And so even though we would love to have them used in classrooms and even for adult learning, that's a challenge because of the the minutes or the the time, the, the you know, whatever it is, it's used up <laughs> when people are on the cell phone. So I, I do want to point that out. And in many countries, there are some technologies that are available for students who have specific disabilities. So maybe a sight-based disability or hearing, what have you, but that's only if they can get, in in some cases, to the, the capital or to a, a, a central location, right, to have that support. And then you get into segregated um, supports. Um, specific to the work that I did in Uganda with an organization called Building Tomorrow, so their entire model and the way they have designed that is to build schools that are physically accessible. So that means you know concrete poured base, ramps, um, they're high enough so that the flooding can't get into the building. There are windows open for natural light, doors that are open for natural light. Um, there's always chalkboard. There's always chalk. There's usually what we would call chart paper available. Um, there is a, a paste that you can create to make things sticky. They can you know stick that up to the wall. Um, markers, 
are available. And then after that, what you do is you're keeping your eye open for what are termed as natural resources. So like, what's a natural resources? Well, there are plenty of water bottles and water bottle caps running around. There's lots of cardboard running around. Um, string is pretty easy to, to access. So just even starting with those items, you just start getting creative with how those materials can be used as learning tools. And then on top of it, the push is to say, okay, if I'm going to make a learning tool, for example, if I'm going to use bottle caps as a, as a counting tool, and we're going to write the numbers on the bottle caps, right? So the kids can put them in order and use them on a number line, what have you. Well, then how do we make that bottle cap accessible to students who have low vision or who are blind? And, want, and we want them to participate. Oh, well, then can we start using a nail or a needle and and make a texture there, right? And so that we're using whatever the Braille is that's utilized locally. And it's it's reminding people to take those steps to think about the entire student population. And everyone was enthused about these kinds of ideas. Um, and it's not that I was bringing anything necessarily brand, brand new, because uh, there are lots of people that are already doing, doing ultra creative things with, for example, cardboard. And so you, maybe they're working on diphthongs, maybe they're, uh, you know, so you've got a, 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 a piece of cardboard that has a P and a P and then an open square and you can slide in the vowel, right? So pop or pip or what have you. And so, or pup, um, so those things are already created, but what needed to happen was to help people figure out how to take that one extra step and to say, this is great. But when we think about every single learner that's going to walk into your classroom, is every single learner going to be able to participate with this? And then if there was the answer of no, well, then let's brainstorm together and ensure that every single learner can participate that way. I think the other Part of it is, um, you know, just and building tomorrow. So many organizations they they do this. They you honor the community, you honor the parents, you honor the families, and what they're already doing in, within natural supports within their community. What do those natural supports look like? How can those be replicated or brought into the classroom, taught to the teacher, communicated to the teacher? And of course, it's making sure that those supports are effective and. Um, are leading towards self-determination and all these things that we want to see happen for all of our learners. But that honoring piece is really, really significant. It's the work that I've done around UDL in locations that are very different than here in the U.S. And so that can include wealthy countries too. It really has forced me to sit sometimes for a really long time and read over and over again the definitions of the checkpoints and the guidelines and say, what is this truly saying? What is this really saying about learning? Going back into the original literature, what is it really saying about how we learn? And how can I translate that in such a way that it'll be effective in that environment? And there are lots of other people doing this wonderful work. It's, it's great. It's great. So I'm meeting them every day. And that's that's wonderful, um, and I, 
every time I can try to create even more connections with those folks, the stronger the UDL community is because they're going to, you know, help me go, help me recognize when I'm not doing something quite right for their community, right? <laughs> or let me know when it is good and say, yeah, please keep doing that. Wow. I really appreciate the the work that you're doing internationally. And I love the, the idea of honoring, right? And honoring the communities that we work in and recognizing the valuable information they have, the valuable knowledge. I mean, consistent with UVL, there's different ways of uh, conveying and creating knowledge, and we need to honor those. And part of that is working in communities that are unlike our own and that have different challenges and so on. So really appreciate that work uh, and hope it continues. Uh, so as we get close to wrapping up our short time together here, so what's next for you? Uh, what are you working on right now that you would be willing to share with our audience? What can they look forward to from Louis <laughs> in the near future? Um, so I didn't, I didn't, have time to check my co-authors. So I am working on two different manuscripts with two different groups of people. So I can say that. <laughs> so there's there's UDL in there. And that's exciting. People with whom I have not written before and but um have grown to know really well and we it's lovely relationship building. So that's exciting. Um I I, I guess I would say that that would be it. I um Somebody asked me on LinkedIn a few weeks ago. I got a message and they were like, "We don't uh do you have a like a calendar that you keep or cuz we don't see what you're doing. Like we'd love to follow you." And my reply was, "I just I don't say a lot. I'm very busy, but I don't really <laughs> tell people I'm just busy doing what I do. Not that I'm trying to keep it hidden. I just don't don't talk about it much. I just do." <laughs> But but I do like to share out specifically stuff about the podcast and, it, you know, of course, the materials make my publishers happy. But that's <laughs> that's through the Twitter, the at Louis Lord Nelson. And then on the same and LinkedIn, if you just put in Louis Lord Nelson, nobody else in the world has my name. If you Google my name, nobody else comes up. I can't do anything nefarious. I cannot. I it, it you know, it go badly, horribly badly horribly wrong. So Louis Lord Nelson, L-O-U-I-L-O-R-D-N-E-L-S-O-N, it's me. <laughs> and of course, you you mentioned the website, uh, the UDLapproach.com. And also, of course, check out the podcast, uh, UDL in 15 Minutes. Uh, and I have the opposite problem, Louis. Uh, you're the one Louis Lord Nelson in the world. Louise Pettis is John Smith in Latin America. So <laughs> no one can find me. So, uh, but it's great that people can find you because you're such a um, great resource to the community and have been for so many years. And uh, you left us with a tease here. So basically, you have to follow Louis uh, on the socials, and then you'll know when these two manuscripts uh, take the next step and, and really see the light of day, which I'm sure they're going to be amazing contributions uh, to the conversation. So there you have it, folks. Uh, something to look forward to. Um, you know, in the next few months uh, coming from Louis Lord Nelson. So, Louis, I just want to thank you uh, so much, uh, first of all, for being such an advocate uh, for accessibility, for the many contributions you're making uh, to the world of UDL, including your modeling uh, through the UDL in 15 Minutes podcast uh, to really make 
our educational podcast more accessible. So you've been a great model to follow for us here. And so really appreciate your contributions. Uh, and with that, we'll leave the conversation here and hopefully we'll pick it up at some point in the future. Well, thank you for having me on the podcast. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Accessible Learning Experience, brought to you by the National Center on Accessible Educational Materials at CAST. You can find us on the web at aem.cast.org. There you'll find show notes with links to all of the resources mentioned on each episode. Thanks again for listening, and remember, accessibility is everyone's responsibility. Contents of this podcast were developed under a cooperative agreement with the U.S. Department of Education. However, those contents do not necessarily represent the policy of the U.S. Department of Education, and you should not assume endorsement by the federal government.